On this Cesar Chavez Day, farm workers across the state are pushing for legislation. This bill would modernize the choices available to farm workers. I'm Jade Hindman. Maureen Cavanaugh is off. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The life and cultural impact of Selena is also remembered on this Cesar Chavez Day. What I think is that she's a pocha, just like I am. And so there's a lot of people who are dealing with different dualities. It could be like her, Mexican-American, you know, she was dealing with two cultures, two languages. We'll tell you how the Ukraine war could lead to a food crisis in some nations. And Beth Accomando previews WonderCon. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. Cesar Chavez dedicated his life to farm workers, and today, many across California are asking the governor to keep his legacy alive through new legislation. The Agricultural Labor Relations Voting Choice Act would allow workers to vote by mail in union elections. Today, there is a push for the California legislature to pass the bill and for Governor Newsom to sign it. Joining me is United Farm Workers Foundation Executive Director Deanna Tellefson-Torres, who will be in San Diego today to raise awareness. Deanna, welcome. Thank you so much for having me here today, Jade. Can you tell us about the Agricultural Labor Relations Voting Choice Act, Assembly Bill 2183, and how it could change the framework for farm workers? Yes, well, AB 2183 would provide more choices in how farm workers vote in union elections. So much like other types of voting have been updated to create choices for voters, this bill would modernize the choices available to farm workers. So the right to choose how to cast a ballot should really be protected, especially in the light of inherent vulnerability of farm workers. So essentially, if the bill is passed, the law would allow farm workers to receive ballots and fill them out wherever they please on their own time, then hand deliver or mail those ballots to the state board that oversees farm worker union elections, or give them to a union organizer to deliver an assigned and sealed envelope. So basically, it would make it easier for farm workers to vote in union elections like in absentee ballots during legislative elections. Now, up until now, has Governor Gavin Newsom met with farm workers to discuss these concerns? Governor Gavin Newsom declined to meet on Cesar Chavez Day with the UFW and farm worker leaders about this critical bill. 
And, you know, the farm workers' response is to hold public events on this very day, March 31st, which is Cesar Chavez Day. Um, and, you know, want to make it clear to Governor Newsom that a living legacy to Caesar is not just proclamations and holidays. It's making a difference for the very people that Cesar dedicated his life to. And so this bill really um, would have a significant impact on farm workers' ability to unionize. The governor vetoed a similar measure last year. How was that different from the current reintroduced proposal? The current bill is very similar to the bill from last year. And so we really believe that the governor needs to take a look at this proposal and really think about the impact that it would have on farm workers, given the fact that farm workers often, when they are trying to vote for a union election, are confronted with intimidation from their employers, from foremen. They're usually voting on the ground um, at their workplace. Often supervisors or foremen are looking on from not too far away. And so we want to make sure that the governor understands that there is a really important responsibility that he has to take into account that he himself has benefited from voters being able to vote from home in the previous election. Farm worker advocates and leaders are protesting across California today to get Governor Newsom's attention about this. Can you tell us about what's going on here in San Diego? Sure. So we have over 14 events throughout California um, where farm workers and supporters and community leaders will be attending. And so here in San Diego, um, we will be in Barrio Logan on Cesar Chavez Parkway uh, between Main Street and Logan Avenue. Um, And we'll have supporters here and different individuals who will be holding signs and we're going to have a human billboard to show drivers and different folks that know, it's important to support farm workers during this time. A lot of people get Cesar Chavez day off, but we need to remember as consumers, as individuals who all of us eat, right? So there is a lot that can be done to ensure that farm workers are protected, that they have their basic rights at the workplace, that they have the pay that they deserve and the ability to have a voice at the workplace. And all consumers have the ability to impact the fact that farm workers you know, need support during this time to be able to improve the union election process in California. I should mention too, Jade, that many people don't know the fact that farm workers were excluded from federal laws that protect other workers. So, you know, farm workers were excluded from the right to collective bargaining in the 1930s to the the right to overtime pay and other protections. And so that was why the UFW fought so hard to have a law here in California in 1975 that we were able to win the Agricultural Labor Relations Act or the ALRA. And so we want changes to that law to ensure that farm workers are able to have a process that's fair to them to be able to unionize in the state. What's next for the proposal? We have introduced the bill already. The bill has 50 co-sponsors, sponsors who are ready to ensure that they're championing this bill in the legislature. And so We know that that is more uh, sponsors than we had in the last iteration of the bill last year. 
Um, so this is really in the hands of the governor. We're going to push hard to ensure that it gets through the legislature. Um, and, you know, we know that the governor's decision has all the weight in the world at this point. And so we want to make sure that he hears not just from farm workers and from farm worker leaders, but also that he's hearing from consumers, from you all who are listening, to let him know that it's important for him to make this decision and to make the right decision, I should say. I've been speaking with United Farm Workers Foundation Executive Director Deanna Tellefson Torres. Deanna, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Jade. Happy Cesar Chavez Day. Happy Cesar Chavez Day to you too. To commemorate the anniversary of the death of legendary Tejano superstar Selena Quintanilla Perez, KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez spoke with an SDSU professor who teaches about the late star's enduring legacy of love, acceptance, and complex identity to his students. It's been 27 years to the day since Selena Quintanilla Perez died. The pop star affectionately called the Queen of Tejano had a significant impact on the conversation of Mexican-American identity, both in her short lifetime and in the many years since her sudden passing. At the height of her career, Selena was a superstar caught between two cultures. She was just crossing over to the English-speaking music world when she died, She is certainly not forgotten by the millions of fans who still admire her life and work. One of those fans is SDSU professor Nathan Shea Rodriguez, who now teaches a class inspired by the late pop star and the legacy she left. Professor Rodriguez joins us now. Dr. Nate, welcome to Midday. Hola, thank you so much for the invitation. So can you start off by telling us a little bit about why Selena is so important to you personally? Growing up, I was in San Antonio, Texas, which is the capital of Tejano music. I come from a Mexican-American family household, and they spoke Spanish, but they wanted me to speak English so that I would do better in school. So growing up, everyone around me was speaking Spanish. I never felt really culturally connected to the Mexican side or to the American side, and I did not know how to kind of form my own identity. I didn't see anybody in the media that looked like me, that sounded like me. And so I always felt kind of trying to play both worlds and never really achieving either one correctly. Then along comes Selena, who was singing in Spanish. She was talking in English. She was fumbling over her words. And I was like, wow, she's just like me. So I started listening to her music, watching her interviews, listening to her on the radio and on those interviews. And I thought, you know what? Here's somebody who is showing that there's not one correct way to be Mexican-American, to be Latinx. And so I started kind of, you know, using her as the cultural template to form my identity. It 
was kind of parallel to the things that I was feeling and going through my own upbringing. What is it about Selena, do you think, that makes it so significant that she teaches young people about identity, being themselves? Well, I think is that she's a pocha, just like I am. And so there's a lot of people who are dealing with different dualities. It could be like her, Mexican-American. You know, she was dealing with two cultures, two languages. And I think a lot of people are struggling with the dualities of different parts of their identity. So she shows that you're able to kind of balance them in your own particular way that makes you feel comfortable and makes you feel like a person yourself rather than trying to have to fit into some sort of box. You use the term pocha. What does that mean? So pocha traditionally is a pejorative that Spanish speakers would call non-native Spanish speakers because they didn't speak Spanish correctly. And since then, it's kind of been used as a term of empowerment and a reclaimed term to basically describe somebody who is comfortable with their identity and they're in between English and Spanish. Doesn't really speak the best of both, but is who they are exactly. So adoration and love for a pop star is one thing. Why structure a course around Selena's life here in San Diego specifically? We are in the borderlands. We're right here between Tijuana and San Diego. Selena grew up in Texas and she was right there along the Mexican border as well. And so I think for us here in San Diego, there is a very much a need for us to connect culturally with this duality that's Mexican-American culture. San Diego State University is an HSI, Hispanic Serving Institution. And when I first came here back in 2016, in the Journalism and Media Studies Department, I noticed that there was a lot of Latinx students, but there was not a lot of courses or curriculum that spoke directly to Latinidad, and they were searching for themselves. And so I thought, well, we need a course here that talks about, you know, Mexican-American representation, Latinx representation in the media, the ability to reach students where they're at, but also kind of get them involved academically and professionally and connect those two worlds. Selena is that perfect cultural anchor. She kind of bridges those two things together. Students have an affinity towards her to want to learn about her and then apply those things to the current media landscape that they're already so much involved with. I'm going to assume most of your students were not even alive when Selena was performing. Not at all. So how have they connected with her? Through her music. Her music is timeless. As I mentioned before, she kind of connects through generations. You had the movie that came out in 1997. You had the Netflix series that came out in 2020. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Everybody was watching streaming media. So they connected through Selena through these mediated representations. And in fact, it's interesting that you bring up that none of them were alive, which is very much true. A lot of their recollections about Selena isn't how she looks physically or how she did look. They remember Jennifer Lopez's portrayal of Selena or even the actress who plays Selena in the Netflix series. That's who they remember, but they connect through the music and they connect also through her culturally, that she speaks Spanish and English and the fact that she loved fashion and that we see her all around us today in Target and Forever 21 on t-shirts. We see her MAC cosmetic line. So I think she's living around us all the time. She's there in the pop culture and it's just something that you can't ignore. And the students, of course, know that. Yo tenía una esperanza en el fondo de mi alma que un día te quedaras conmigo y aún guardaba una ilusión que alimentaba 
el corazón Mi corazón que hoy tiene que verte como solo amigo To that point, her music has impacted so many diverse communities, particularly the queer community mm -hmm. and drag queens especially. I would imagine she's probably one of the most imitated performers in the drag queen community. And I think it goes back to this conversation about identity and duality. And I think queer people, right, are sometimes trying to figure out their identity in very specific times. They're growing up, you know, and they're having this internal conversation with themselves of who am I? What am I? And I think Selena is another perfect example of that kind of cultural template of looking at these dualities and these binaries. I mean, not that identities are dichotomous and one or the other, but they can all exist at the same time. And sometimes we have 17 to 20 different facets of our identity. And I think from a queer perspective, we can see how we can take someone like Selena and look at her and she symbolizes so much of who we are culturally, especially if we are Mexican-American or Latinx or Spanish speakers, and how we can use her as kind of that archetype to create a persona, her hoop earrings, her red lipstick, her purple sparkly jumpsuit and the way she dances, moving her hips to the cumbias. It's fun, it's culturally relevant, and I think it's also nostalgic in a sort of a way for a lot of queer people. What would be an ideal song you could point to that would speak to what we're talking about? Probably something like Amor Prohibido, which translates in English to prohibited love. In the song, she never really says if it's a man or a woman. She just talks about two people from two different societies who are in love with one another. And it's prohibited by their parents. It's prohibited by society. But love endures. And love endures all. And I think for the queer community, love and acceptance has always been something there against all odds. That's a theme amongst a lot of people who are queer. If you could have Selena in your class as a guest speaker today, what do you think her message would be? She was always speaking about never giving up to remember that the impossible is always possible. So I think it would always be one about perseverance. It would be one about loving who you are and being authentic. And I think just, you know, being happy and fulfilling your own personal destiny, whatever that might be. Perfect way to end this conversation. I have been speaking with SDSU Professor Nathan Shea Rodriguez. Dr. Nate, thanks for joining us. Muchas gracias. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. The cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation. And that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can. All right? Thanks. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Maureen Kavanaugh is off. 
The president is expected to announce plans to release one million gallons of petroleum from the nation's stockpile every day for the next six months. It's to combat rising gas prices. The historic move comes as a consequence of the war in Ukraine. The war is taking a direct toll on the people of Ukraine, but its repercussions are far-reaching. Those include the potential for hunger and malnutrition for the most vulnerable people around the world. In an essay published today on the blog Political Violence at a Glance, Stefan Haggard and Jennifer Burney, professors at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego, write, The war is causing food prices around the world to rise, which could lead to more loss of life beyond Ukraine's borders. And Professor Haggard joins us now. Welcome to you. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. So much attention has been paid to the price of oil as a consequence of sanctions around Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But you write the humanitarian crisis that could result from rising food prices could have far greater consequences. Uh, What do you think could happen? The commodity effects of the war in Ukraine are not limited to oil and gas. As it turns out, Ukraine accounts for about 15 percent of world wheat production It also has a role in a bunch of smaller markets like uh, cooking oils that are very important for people in the Middle East. And because production and particularly shipping have been interrupted by the war, prices in those markets are are really spiraling to levels we haven't seen in some cases in two decades. Hmm. So tell me, what is the link between wheat and the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Well, first of all, I, I think that you know we worry about the war actually interfering with planting and harvesting. But in the short run, the main issue is that many of these grains, in fact, most of them come through the Black Sea. And those ports have been closed in part because U- Ukraine has closed them for security reasons, but also because parts of that corridor, as we know, the Mariupol disaster are actually where fighting is occurring. And so uh, this product just hasn't been able to reach the ports and from the ports to the main uh, markets. And again, uh, the Middle East is affected in the first and foremost because of the, where it sits geographically. So how then are you anticipating the war could impact global wheat supplies? Well, I think it's not, again, just the wheat supplies. It's what happens to consumers in countries that are poor that rely on the purchase of either wheat directly or on wheat products. So let me give you an example. Egypt is one of the world's largest importers of wheat. That wheat goes into a flatbread, which is a kind of staple for Egyptian households. Now, what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is that prices for that staple have increased 50% plus in a country where there are a lot of people who are not just poor, but very poor. You reference food riots in 2008 in several countries around the world, including Egypt, Pakistan, Cameroon, uh, to name a few. Remind us of the consequence, then, of rising food prices. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really surprising story that uh, you had these food riots in 20 or 30 countries during that food price spike, which, by the way, is where we're getting up to again. And I think the, the standard distributional story is that farmers actually can gain from these prices. If you're growing wheat in Egypt or if you're growing sorghum in the Cameroons, 
and food prices rise, you win. But for those in the cities that are consumers and don't have access to grown food, they're going to the markets, they're going to their shopping centers, they're going to their food shops, and they're seeing those prices go up. And so uh, that, that's where the consequences are. I just want to make reference to one other thing, and that is that civil wars actually are raging in a number of countries, in Yemen, around the Sahara, in northern Ethiopia. And those are also areas that we think are likely to be very vulnerable because food supplies have already been interrupted in those cases, and these price rises are going to have particular impact there. Do you see a way for certain for markets to be self-sufficient in times like these? Well, there's this adage, which I don't completely agree with, that the best solution for high prices is high prices, by which we mean that the high prices will incentivize farmers to do what they do globally and plant and harvest to take advantage of those high prices. But I think that markets just can't handle this problem. We're going to need the World Food Program in particular, which is a kind of global lender of last resort for food, to help out the markets by mobilizing cash that will help poor people purchase food and, where necessary, actually mobilize stocks of food that can be transferred to these conflict areas and poor countries. I've been speaking with Stefan Haggard, a professor in the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. Professor Haggard, thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. And Professor Stefan Haggard will be participating in a panel discussion of sanctions on Russia, the energy and food dimensions on Monday, April 4th at 5 p.m. More information about that free public event is on our website, kpbs.org. People living in San Diego have probably seen a broken streetlight or two, or maybe a few dozen. The city has a massive backlog of broken streetlights, and it takes an average of just under a year to fix each one. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen digs into what's behind that problem and how the city is trying to use data to keep the lights on. Uh, We gear up and put our harness on for... um Fall protection. City electrician Aaron Gambala straps himself into a truck that lifts him up to a streetlight in San Diego's Bay Terraces neighborhood. A resident reported the streetlight broken, but when he runs a quick test on it, so it works. The light turns on. You know what? Go ahead and change it. Go ahead and change it. Okay. Gambala's supervisor, Derek Mack, says the light is probably on its last leg and is still worth replacing with a newer, more energy-efficient LED light. This light was reported out just under a year ago, and that's a typical wait time for a city that has about 70,000 streetlights and only eight electricians to maintain them. Right now, we'll function on probably... Uh, half the crew that we would normally have. Mac oversees the city's streetlight repair division. We've been asked to do more with less, and it's nobody's fault. It's just that it's just what we have to deal with right now. More than 5,000 streetlights are reported broken in San Diego. Mac says the slow pace of repair is partly due to supply chain delays. It can take 8 to 12 weeks just to get materials. An even bigger issue is staffing. Electricians can typically make more money working in the private sector. But on the flip side of that, the city is a, it's a great place to work for because you have uh, 
Your salary is guaranteed. You know, you don't have to worry about uh, getting sent home because it's raining or whatever. You have, you have your job here. You have your job security here. So each one of these dots on this particular map represents a report that's coming about a streetlight that's been out. Kirby Brady is the city's chief innovation officer and head of the performance and analytics department. She's showing me a phone app her department is developing for the streetlight repair team. So again, this is more of an efficiency tool for them so that they understand where they're at in relationship to all of the surrounding work orders. It could take years for San Diego to fill all of its vacant electrician jobs. In the meantime, Brady is tasked with helping the existing staff be more efficient. She developed an algorithm that helps the team decide which streetlight repairs are the most urgent. With the streetlight, we can tell how close it is to a school, how close it might be to a park. Of course, these things are important for safety. We want safe routes for people to walk or bike or drive. We also know things about traffic density, so if a particular streetlight is located in an area where there are high volume traffic collisions, that should factor into sort of the urgency of the repair. The system also identifies clusters of repairs, so the crews can spend less time driving across the city to the next job. Brady admits data alone won't fix the backlog of broken streetlights. But drawing attention to how big the problem is could convince city officials, even voters, to put more money towards fixing it. In any given year, the city never has enough money to throw at all of the departments to fix things. But our hope is that by spotlighting some of the most frequently requested services by residents, we can start to funnel resources there and improve those service levels over time. Another selling point for the app, it appears to be improving employee morale. Derek Mack, the supervising electrician, says repair crews now feel like there's logic behind their assignments. Before that system came up, we was jumping around. Whoever was making the most noise, that's where we was going, you know, and whatever um, upper management centers. But this system right here, I think, is a perfect system for us. Fixing a broken streetlight isn't always as simple as changing a light bulb. Sometimes the underground wiring is a century old and needs replacement, which can take weeks, if not months. In the meantime, the city plans on evaluating the success of its data-driven approach to streetlight repair later this year. Andrew Bowen, KPBS News. Amid the constant swirl of dire stories on the climate crisis we face, our next guest offers a glimmer of hope. Bill McKibben is an environmentalist, founder of 350.org, and author of a recent New Yorker article titled, In a World on Fire, Stop Burning Things. In it, he argues that renewable energy is getting cheaper and easier to generate, and more importantly, is ready to replace fossil fuels in our warming world. The author recently spoke with Andrew Bowen. Here's that interview. News coverage of the latest report from the UN's climate watchdog, the IPCC, was somewhat overshadowed by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which started just a few days prior. So for those who missed it, what are the key takeaways from that report? Two key takeaways. One, we're all but out of time. As the Secretary General of the UN said, he'd never read a more dire report, and the window was closing rapidly. That was the last sentence of those 6,000-page report. Second takeaway, exactly the same thing that's causing climate change is causing uh, much of the war in Ukraine. That war is funded by fossil fuel, and fossil fuel is its main weapon. In both cases, the answer is the same quickly get off fossil fuel. There's a pretty clear dissonance between the Biden administration's climate goals 
and President Biden's push to increase oil production to deal with this current supply shortage that we're under. Why is our foreign policy so often completely disconnected from our climate policy? Well, as long as we have to constantly worry about the political repercussions of the price of a gallon of gasoline, we're going to be stuck in this same problem. The answer clearly lies in getting off fossil fuel, which we're now able to do. In the last few years, scientists and engineers have dropped the price of renewable energy 90%. We know that we have technologies like electric bikes and buses and cars that let us break free of oil and gas. And we should seize this moment to do it fast because fast is the operative word here. We're up against a timed test with climate change. And if we don't meet that time test, then whatever we do decades from now won't matter. So let's talk about that cost factor. In your article, you challenge the presumption that moving to clean energy is expensive, in fact, more expensive than business as usual. Why is that assumption wrong? I talk a lot about a new study from a team at Oxford University whose specialty is on the learning curve. And what they've established is that solar and wind and batteries are on a very steep learning curve. Every year, the price of solar power comes down another 10%, and it's been doing so for a couple of decades now. Each time we double the installed capacity, the price comes down 30% because we get better at it. That's the opposite of what happens with something like coal, which gets harder to find. You have to go further back in the mine all the time. So the cost isn't on the same declining curve. And that means that if we quickly got about the business of switching over to renewable energy, the Oxford estimate is the world would save $27 trillion over the next few decades, just because you wouldn't have to be shoveling coal and gas and oil into burners anymore. You'd just put up the solar panels and wait for the sun to rise above the horizon. So what would it take then, given those economic factors, for us to finally move off of fossil fuels, as you propose in your article? It would take a wartime focus. It would take extraordinary effort to build out those renewable resources in the same way that in the run-up to World War II, we quickly used our industrial might to build the things we needed then, bombers and tanks and ships. Now we need wind turbines, we need batteries, we need solar panels. They're all within our ability to do, but it means overcoming both inertia, always a powerful force, and the even more powerful force of toxic vested interest and the fossil fuel industry. That's the kind of influence that has to be overcome or else we're going to end up in a hellscape that's ruled by fossil fuel despots. That, that's clearly where we're headed. One new concept that I learned from your article is that of fossil fuel rents. Can you explain what fossil fuel rents are and why they matter when we try to calculate the cost of transitioning to renewable energy? Sure. So Saudi Arabia can pull oil out of the ground at $10 a barrel. And they can sell it on world markets, well, this week at $90 a barrel. So that $80 is the rent they get just from sitting on top of it. Here's the thing to understand about the difference between fossil fuel and renewable energy. Fossil fuel is scattered around few concentrated deposits in different parts of the world. The people who control those, the king of Saudi Arabia, Vladimir Putin, the Koch brothers, whoever they are, get to extract huge rents and they get to have, as a result, 
unearned political power. So the beautiful thing about sun and wind, besides the fact that they don't destroy the atmosphere, is that there's some of them everywhere. It's not like it's going to solve all our problems to move to sun and wind, but it's a big step in the direction of democracy. You write that accepting nuclear power for a while longer is a place where environmentalists will need to bend. What do you mean by that, and how should nuclear fit into our energy transition? So I think if we have nuclear power plants that are already built and paid for and are operating with some margin of safety, and that'll vary from place to place, then we probably should strive to keep them open for a while because they're providing low-carbon power. Yeah, they're dangerous, as as the fighting around the nuclear power plants in Ukraine has made abundantly clear. I mean, nobody is providing dispatches uh, uh, to the world's news media about fighting around you know wind turbines because that wouldn't present the same kind of risk. I don't think that nuclear power is probably going to play a huge role in the years ahead as we try to build out our clean energy sources. And the reason is just that it's highly, highly expensive. Uh, new nuclear power costs much more. This Oxford study says several multiples more than building out sun and wind and batteries. And it's not on that same kind of declining cost curve. But if you've got some now, you might want to think long and hard about keeping it open a little while longer as we're making this transition. One of the key arguments that I took away from your article is that the technological barriers to decarbonizing our economy are not insurmountable. We can get there. The bigger hurdle seems to be political. So what has to happen for us to meet this moment, politically speaking? Well, I mean, the the short answer is we have to break the political power of the fossil fuel industry. But one way of doing that is to just reframe this problem in our minds. Our job after 200,000 years of learning to burn things on the planet, is to learn very quickly how not to burn them, how to put out the fires of oil and gas and coal, and instead rely on the fact that the good Lord hung a large ball of burning gas 93 million miles away in the sky that we now have the brains to make use of, and we should. We can stop burning here because the sun burns there. I've been speaking with Bill McKibben, founder of 350.org and Third Act, organizing people over 60 for climate and racial justice. His latest article in The New Yorker is titled, In a World on Fire, Stop Burning Things. Bill McKibben, thanks so much for joining us. What a pleasure to be with you. Many thanks. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. WonderCon is Comic-Con International's sister convention and serves up a smaller, less crowded pop culture event. Comic-Con had a scaled-back special edition last November, so this weekend's WonderCon marks the nonprofit organization's first full show since the pandemic hit. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando previews the show with spokesperson David Glanzer. David, WonderCon is coming up, and this is going to be the first full back-in-person show since the pandemic. So how does this feel? 
it really feels strange. It feels strange in a good way, but it really is strange. You know, Comic-Con had our special edition event in November. That was in San Diego. It was a smaller event. It was meant to be. It was nice to kind of get our feet wet again. But this is our first, you know, full-fledged show when it is supposed to be. We're excited, also cautious enough to try to be prepared for anything. (laughs) And putting on Comic-Con Special Edition, did you learn anything from that in the sense of, did it feel like people were eager or anxious to come back? Were some people hesitant about being with that large a crowd? Uh, Was there any lesson learned? All of that was stuff that happened. So as an example, there were people who were hesitant to come back to a large venue. We totally understand that. There were people who uh, were very excited to come back. There were, for the most part, people, you know, we had a mask mandate. And for the most part, people were very, very accommodating to that. But I think one thing that that we learned is up until the pandemic, we had put on shows for 50, 50 years. And what's remarkable is you would think it would be such a well-oiled machine that, you know, what could go wrong? I mean, there's always fires to put out. But honestly, it was, we were so grateful that we had that show because it was almost as if there were things that, that we forgot. There were things that, that should have happened that we had to play catch up on. And I think that's not only from an organizer standpoint, but maybe even from an attendee standpoint too of, you know, oh yeah, you know, um, we need to make sure we do this, make sure check times on this or make sure whatever it happened to be. Now, as the weekend went on, we all I think kind of got into our groove. But there were lessons learned, and I think the biggest one is people really did want to get together again. People wanted to see their friends in person as opposed to, you know, a, a computer screen. People were incredibly uh, generous and and uh, forgiving of, you know, any errors and mistakes we had, and, and that, was, that was very gratifying. Now, WonderCon has always been a smaller show than Comic-Con. So what is it looking like attendance might be, or is there going to be a cap on what attendance at this WonderCon is? So there isn't. One of the things that we're, we're able to do at Anaheim that we don't have the luxury for in San Diego is it's got a very, very large convention facility and different nooks and crannies that we can put people in programming in. There are still some um, exhibitors who and some guests who can't come because certain companies still have a no travel policy, but we're going to have a really pretty good floor, pretty good programming. So I think, you know, our attendance, we really won't know until the Monday after the show or probably the week after the show, but the numbers are picking up and we're kind of excited about it. We're hoping, for, you know, we, we expect it to be a smaller show than the usual WonderCon, but we may be surprised and uh, it may be uh, just as big or bigger. And WonderCon isn't quite as competitive for buying passes as Comic-Con. So are you expecting that people can buy passes through this week? Yes. In fact, we're seeing our numbers kind of really go up and we're, we're excited about that. I, I believe that we'll probably end up having ticket sales uh, during the show as well. So like the old days of Comic-Con where you could actually walk up and buy a ticket Uh, Our hope is to be able to do that this spring as well with WonderCon. Now, one of the things about Comic-Con Special Edition was there wasn't really a Hollywood presence. So is there an expected Hollywood presence at this WonderCon? There will be a Hollywood presence. We're excited and and grateful for that. But I think everybody is taking the attitude of we want to make sure that we share something that the fans will enjoy. We have enough space to be able to accommodate uh, a lot more people if need be. 
there's a lot of programming space, a lot of exhibit space. So people can be a little less frantic about that. So the stuff that we've been, uh, you know, uh, committed to, have been committed to us, have been some really cool thing, I, things. I think there'll be some uh, fun programs this weekend and um, some great exhibits. And all in all, I think it'll be a pretty good show. And are there going to be any COVID protocols in place for this show? Yes, uh, that's on our website, but there'll be a mask mandate again and proof of vaccination. In fact, all of that information is on our, our website for the for WonderCon. We have a COVID uh, FAQ. And in addition to that, you, know, you can find who the exhibitors are, all the programming for the weekend, uh, parking information, stuff like that. It's, it's pretty robust in terms of uh, information. And Comic-Con has a reputation for cosplay and people arriving in costume. But I have to say, in all the years I've been attending WonderCon, I believe that the attendees there kick it up a few notches for that. So is that another one of the things that is going to be fun about being back in person? Yeah, I think one of the great things about WonderCon, you know, WonderCon started in Oakland, uh, you know, over 20 years ago. And it always had a very casual uh, vibe. We moved it over to San Francisco and then uh, to um, Anaheim. And it's always maintained that casual vibe. But one of the great things is also the cosplay community. It's always been a big cosplay show, and it continues to be. One of the great things about WonderCon is typically on Sunday, when the doors close at 5 o'clock and everybody's kind of being ushered out, the cosplayers stay in the courtyard area, take pictures, you know, mingle with each other. Nobody wants to leave, and I don't blame them. And I'm looking forward to see what kind of costumes we get this year. You know, when I get a, a chance, I usually try to snap a couple of pictures because there's some really incredibly talented and innovative costumes out there. And I know WonderCon has yet to start, but I'm sure there's still a lot of people very eager for information about Comic-Con this summer. So at this point, is the plan to have it? And is there any sense of when tickets might go on sale for that? In all honesty, the show is effectively sold out because we had planned on having the show in 2020 and the tickets went on sale in 2019. Of course, when 2020 came, you know, into the worldwide pandemic, we had to cancel the show. So those tickets rolled over to 2021. And then uh, we had to cancel 2021. So those tickets rolled over to 2022. Now, just from attrition, people move, any number of things, there are some tickets that may be available. So it's a possibility there may be some ticket sales. But in all honesty, right now, the show is technically sold out. As we wrap WonderCon, we'll look more fully into Comic-Con. Uh, and decide if there's something that we can do. But I think what I'm I'm excited about is uh, for WonderCon, for Comic-Con, of course, but then for Comic-Con 2023, when we actually try to see if we can get back into a regular show, have a new you know set of ticket sales, and hopefully everybody will be able to join us from exhibitors to attendees to program participants to cosplayers to everything. All right. Well, thank you very much for talking about this year's WonderCon. Hey, it's always a pleasure, and uh, I'm looking forward to the show, and I hope people uh, come and join us. That was Beth Accomando speaking with David Glanzer. WonderCon runs tomorrow through Sunday at the Anaheim Convention Center.